Architecture and Design, and my name is Branko Melodic, and today we have as our special guest Suzanne Toombaru, the Executive Director of the Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council, and a judge on the 2020 Sustainability Awards. And how are you today, Suzanne? I'm very well on this rainy day, thank you, Branko. It's raining over your way? It's raining, well... Touchy, um, uh, but yes, and in fact, um, I'm pretty happy to see the rain. Um, it's uh, it's been beautiful the last week, but it's always nice to uh, to see the rain come in. Okay, so how are you? I mean, how is Asbeck, for example, taking um, uh, working with this new lockdown environment? From a from an Asbeck perspective. Uh, one thing that people generally might not be aware of is that we're tiny operationally and because we're tiny we're pretty nimble and so um, moving to a working from home arrangement has been uh, a fairly smooth and easy thing to do with me and my uh, my work colleague Pip. Uh, I've watched though uh, as our members and their members, our members of the peak bodies in the built environment um, including the Property Council and the Institute of Architects and the Facility Managers Association, Energy Efficiency Council, Green Building Council and so on, and their respective members uh, deal with this transition and when you have, of course, a larger workforce, uh, it, it becomes a big technological and logistical challenge, not to mention the, I guess, the, uh, the bated breath with which we wait to see um, what the health and economic fallout is going to look like. Okay, on that point, you are small, but you you have insight into a lot of areas. Um, what are you hearing uh, out there in the world of the built environment? Uh, in relation to sustainability. Well, in relation to first, well, yeah, uh, well, that'll that'll be my um, second question. But in relation to where they think um, we're going to be economically. At the moment, I think that uh, there there is no clear line of vision to where we are going to end up. Uh, there's preparation for the worst. I think the uh, the impact on population, for example, uh, is uh, puts a big question mark on what this might mean for the property sector. Uh, the impact on how our workforce is able to engage um, uh, puts a big question over what this might look like in terms of productivity. Uh, there's also, of course, the question of how the government will continue uh, to uh, engage with and support uh, the economy as it has already done uh, over the last couple of months. And that's provided a lot of confidence and support to businesses uh, who have needed uh, to, uh, I guess, to support their workforce and provide uh, um, some certainty over the short term. So past the next few months, it's uh, it's really kind of a, uh, a, a very unknown territory. Uh, I think um, the, the members are already gearing up uh, for that uncertainty, uh, trying to um, help to prepare their own membership in terms of uh, industry and professionals for this future. There's a huge amount of uh, activity going on in terms of web conferences and, uh, and online meetings and briefings and forums uh, to help to share information and inform and equip the industry for what might be coming down, um, you know, down the track. 
Uh, and so I have never before seen that much activity in terms of what's on offer. Um, but, you know, it's, it is very uncertain. So the only certainty is the uncertainty. Um, Absolutely. Interesting you mentioned immigration. Do you really think it's going to make a huge impact? I mean, I, I'm just um, this is really the uh, I guess a dummy's question for me because I'm I'm you're not the first person who's actually said that, and I'm and I'm, I think I read it this morning even on in the Australian. So, um, do you think it's going to be a really huge impact on the on the property sector? Again, it's unknown. Um, we don't know what uh, what the policy landscape might look like in terms of immigration, in terms of you know. Um, what uh, what might be appropriate and allowed uh, over the um, short to medium term uh, and what that might mean for us uh, in terms of um, our economy and in particular our, our property sector. So it's, a, it's just another question mark right now. There are kind of predictions either way. Uh, but I think, you know, if you were to... To, to be an optimist, Australia and of course New Zealand have fared up to now really well uh, in a global uh, context. Uh, you know, we've managed to maintain, you know, at a very great, a very good level, the health of our population, and that will have, um, you know, positive implications for how our economy um, might bounce back. And uh, and so there are like there's likely to be interest from across the globe in how they might uh, I guess become involved, uh, but we really don't know. The, the 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 whole world is in I guess in in a state of uncertainty. So it's very hard to project. You mentioned sustainability. Um, and I, I I don't want to go down the path of a lot of people saying that you know this is a this is a you know uh, this crisis should be an opportunity because I'm 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 not sure whether it whether any crisis really is an opportunity. However, uh, someone recently said to me, uh, made a very interesting comment. They said this is a, this is our chance to flatten the climate change curve, which I thought was a great <laughs> a great way of putting things. Um, do you think that 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 we can, um, you know, use what's been going on, or how we've changed things, to uh, from this 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 pandemic to perhaps address some of the issues in sustainability in the built environment. Look, I, I, over the last um, eight or so years at ASBEC, I have thought that every moment presents a good opportunity to flatten the climate change curve. Um, now more than ever, uh, I guess whilst we're slowing down. Uh, and and figuring out how we recalibrate and what we recalibrate to, um, of course, it's a great opportunity. And particularly in a stimulus context, it's a really good opportunity that, for example, the International Energy Agency um, over the last couple of weeks had released um, some, uh, some insights into what energy efficiency opportunities might provide. Uh, and one of the insights that I found particularly compelling was that... Um, in terms of, for example, uh, more energy efficient housing, the additional investment that, that goes into improving the energy efficiency of housing, over half of that investment goes towards labour. And in a stimulus context, we need to be able to support as many jobs and new jobs as possible, uh, whilst some sectors uh, are, are currently struggling. Uh, and so when we're looking at opportunities to boost our economy and to boost the workforce, 
we should be looking at those opportunities that not only add immediate benefit in terms of economic drivers and jobs, uh, but also provide benefit um, in the longer terms in terms of more comfortable homes that are cooler in summer and warmer in winter and cheaper to heat and you know, cheaper to run. So there's, there's a huge opportunity uh, in how we might invigorate and reinvigorate our economy. I would hate for us to miss out on those benefits by doing things quickly and cheaply uh, and just looking at uh, kind of lowest common denominator um, uh, opportunities to move forward rather than ones that take everybody forward together. And, and on top of that, there's a, there's a you know, a green jobs component here as well. I mean, I mean, yes, a lot of jobs will come back eventually. I think some may not. <laughs> I think some jobs in tourism, tourism industry are, are gone forever. Um, do you um, do you think that this is an opportunity for for you know uh, addressing the unemployment issues with some you know green jobs? Well, the Energy Efficiency Council quite recently uh, uh, released some work uh, looking at the job opportunity. Um, in fact, I say recently, this shows just how fast time flies. It was probably a bit about a year ago. Okay. Uh, but in terms of energy efficiency and looking at uplift in Australia, um, they would create the equivalent of about 120,000 full-time jobs. Uh, and so, yes, absolutely. Uh, and you know, so there are, there are great workforce opportunities in the context of a transition. And the other thing that... Um, that we should be considering is how how might we use the time in the context of a slowdown to um, to pivot towards those new opportunities. So led by uh, you know the narrative that the Energy Efficiency Council has released, uh, they uh, the language that we're using is um, uh, looks at how we protect, pivot, and rebound. And of course, protect is what we're doing right now, battening down the hatches, uh, um, moving through a lockdown and trying to make sure we preserve as many lives as possible uh, and preserve our health as well as possible. Uh, but then at the same time, we need to be thinking about how do we pivot in order to rebound into a, you know, a, a, a good future for all of us. Uh, and that pivot opportunity looks at um, what kind of skills and training might become available and how might a workforce um, be better equipped to deliver, well, in our case, better buildings and better performing buildings uh, and low carbon uh, buildings. So this is a really good time to be consolidating, uh, you know, a, a skills and uh, education package. And uh, there's some good work being led through the Coag Energy Council's trajectory for low energy buildings that is active on that. And ASBEC is involved in that. And eventually, in terms of a rebound, in terms of stimulus to take us uh, into, you know, a, a good future, uh, there's really great opportunities to look at um, how we might, for example, um, undertake energy efficiency upgrades uh, through our building stock. Schools provide a really good ground for that. Commercial buildings, and particularly ones that are vastly underutilised at this time, provide a really great opportunity too. Keeping on the jobs theme. Um there's been uh, a couple of coalition backbenchers, in particular, been been kicking and screaming about, uh, you know, this is the time to bring our manufacturing industry back if it's even possible. Um, but looking at the, you know, the building products manufacturing, I mean, I know a lot of it's done here and a lot of it isn't. Um, 
do you think this is a case um, to to perhaps take another look at at manufacturing, particularly you know for building products, and particularly when when you want to talk about you know um, products that conform to whatever standard we're talking about, whether it be a sustainability or a safety standard. Um, do you think do you think we we should be looking at at maybe more onshore manufacturing, you know, for the for the built environment? Look, I think that that definitely represents an opportunity, probably mostly in the context of uh, you know in the building sector, we really do have an issue with non-conforming products, products that don't do what they're supposed to do, uh, and so you know we. And that's kind of aside from the compliance issue where you're using the wrong thing for, for the wrong purpose. Uh, but there are products that uh, don't conform to the specified, uh, to the specifications. And uh, my understanding is, and the Building Product Industry Council uh, has uh, recommended um, that we are much more careful about what comes into this country and uh, and how it is certified and how it uh, is confirmed to conform to its um, specified requirements. Uh, and within Australia, there are kind of better opportunities to confirm that. Uh, and so, you know, through the various um, certification pro processes and programs that are available, um, we have uh, much more of a hands-on opportunity uh, with Australian manufacturers when we bring them in from offshore, um, you know, and particularly in the context of COVID, uh, we can't travel overseas to um, to inspect how these uh, these products are being put together, uh, and so we'd need to make sure that the process, you know, the certification process is rigorous, uh, and that um, we are we are confident of what is uh, what is coming in, uh, and so it is a good time to consider how we better gear up our local manufacturing. Uh, and in the context of the quality of the product they're able to supply to um, to our industry. You mentioned compliance. Um, I, I think that's I think that that's about half your world, isn't it? Um, compliance. Um, do you think that this pandemic will have a, a a positive or a negative impact on on things like you know the NCC or, 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 or compliance across the board? Um, I've been hearing some very interesting um, you know um, opinions on that. Um, in, in particular, I think Western Australia suspended the uh, NCC implementation for a year, didn't it, from uh, earlier this year? Um, do you think that has any imp this, this pandemic has any impact on, on compliance in the, in, the, in the built environment? It could go either way. And so now's the time for us to be really careful and attentive about how we do this. As I said, we can try and um, deliver economic stimulus by building, to use really crude language, as much crap as fast as possible. And pretty much that is, that's going to be a matter of cost shifting. Uh, you know, we'll save money now and then it will cost us into the future. It will cost us in terms of energy bills and cost us in terms of health impact and, and so on. And it will cost us in terms of emissions. Uh, or we can do it right. Uh, and that would be, again, an investment in jobs and our workforce because it takes skilled uh, practitioners to make sure that things are being done right. 
uh, and that means that uh, we invigorate the workforce now and we reap the benefits later. That's a decision that industry and government are going to have to make together and I would pray that we make the right decision uh, and don't try and save that money in a really short-term way uh, and burden our, you know, burden our whole society in the longer term. And also um, miss out on the opportunity to, as I mentioned, to invigorate kind of that, um, the skills that we need in this area and utilise them well. That's exactly um, uh, what an article in the conversation said about, about a week ago. Um, they are, however, talking about, I'm, I'm starting to get sick of the term shovel-ready projects, but um, they are talking about a lot of, um, doing a lot of infrastructure. Um, if Suzanne Tumbaru had a magic wand, um, what infrastructure would you like um, to be built first and why? <laughs> I'm, I'm entirely the wrong person to ask. Uh, the, the, the realm of ideas in which I dwell uh, looks at how you kind of identify the parameters within which you would then um, agree to deliver certain infrastructure projects. Uh, I have to say that the work of Infrastructure Australia has done a really great job in, um, I guess, engaging stakeholders and identifying those priority projects. But we would want to see projects that uh, that help to better connect communities. We'd want to see projects that uh, that prioritise in that connection how they might um, deliver broader outcomes in terms of environmental and social outcomes. And so, you know, with, with any particular infrastructure project, uh, we are very keen to make sure that... Um, Things like, for example, the urban design protocol are considered so that you do deliver the broader benefits rather than uh, kind of the basic infrastructure. There are rating tools out there like the IS rating tool and uh, Green Star Communities that also help to make sure that you're meeting best practice benchmarks, uh, including, for example, how you might, um, uh, how, you, how your own, you engage with your own workforce in delivering um, these projects. So I know it's, it's a fuzzy answer, uh, but it's not really about um, picking a favourite project so much as delivering a project that delivers broad benefits, not just along a narrow kind of cost-benefit analysis. I was, I was thinking, you live in Sydney, Suzanne, you must have a list of 10 <laughs> favourite infrastructure things that you, you, you'd like, because I know I, I have a list or two. Um, <laughs> Which do you like, Franco? Well, you know, I could I could probably see more rail, um, and I don't know whether we really need any more football stadiums. Um, and I reckon I reckon that um, we re we could really really refurbish some of some of our um, you know I guess uh, buildings around the place that I think need a bit of work in terms of at least sustainability. But that's I guess uh, I don't have a magic wand either. You know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see in some of these, in particular in, in schools and social housing uh, and community housing, the, the opportunity taken to improve that stock, um, you know, through uh, really kind of um, uh, quick and dirty initiatives, like, for example, making sure that they are properly insulated, but then looking at kind of some of the deeper um, building fabric opportunities that might exist and might be... Um, effectively rolled out. You know, now is a good time to to really consider if we're going to look at um, uplift. Maybe not even um, how we build new things, but how we improve whatever already exists and and what our community is already depending on.
one thing that, uh, I, I think that that's become obvious from this this crisis is that um, money doesn't seem to be an obstacle <laughs> when the government needs to um, needs to fork it out. I mean, I, I think all up we're talking so far about two hundred billion. Do you think um, post post pandemic? Do you think next time? That, uh, that we need money for this or that, whether it be sustainability, whether it be for infrastructure, whether it be for some social issue, do you think the, the, the whatever government's in power will not m- really have a leg to stand on when they start saying, well, we don't have the money to pay for this or that? I hate to be slippery, but again, it can go both ways. So yes, it's, it's demonstrating just how nimble government can be in delivering what's needed when it's needed. Uh, and on the other side, um, it could form an excuse for governments in, way into the future for not being able to spend because they're trying to address this deficit. So I, I think it depends on the mindset and that ideology and the will um, of any future government. But they certainly have learned how to act fast and loosen the purse strings um, and, and, and really deliver um, economically where it's needed. So we've seen their capacity to adapt. Um, how they might... Uh, use that capacity in future is completely unknowable true true okay so uh, you've been roped in um willingly i i i i believe to be <laughs> be a judge on the on this year's sustainability awards which are still going ahead at the in, in november 12 this year um as a judge as a first uh, you're a i believe a first time judge aren't you on the on these awards from from memory I think this is the second time, but it was a, a break in between. Okay, there you go. So my my, my memory doesn't serve me well. Um, as a judge, <laughs> as a judge, uh, what would you like to see? Because I've had a lot of comments from people saying that some of the entries seem to do a lot of um, uh, assumptions rather than than, than actual. Um, facts and figures. I mean, what as a judge, what would you like to see um, in terms of uh, uh, entries to the Sustainability Awards, and w- what do you think people should be submitting? Yeah, I'd like good evidence that the vision is met by the outcome. Uh, and so, you know, often there's there's really good ideas and kind of really good uh, narrative about how how these ideas are affected. But you know, evidence about how that's met. Um, personally. I have an interest in um, how how you can verify environmental outcomes, uh, and you know, I, I always like to see um, rating tools used. Uh, the, the rating tool, you know, there are a plethora available, but you know, good ones uh, or or you know, standards or certification systems, so that um, we can be really confident uh, that good sustainability outcomes are confirmed. Uh, Green Star is an example, IS Rating Tool is an example, Passive House is an example, uh, Living Building Challenge is an example. Um, there are more that I haven't named and I apologise if people feel that I've missed them. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm always much more satisfied with, uh, you know, confirmed third party verified outcomes. Um, at the same time, I wouldn't want to dissuade anybody from trying to meet high um, sustainability uh, ambitions. And so, uh, you know, this isn't kind of a fundamental perspective and there, and there might be some inhibitors to, to being certified. Uh, but um, I'm always really pleased to see those um, because not only does it help to verify, but it also helps to kind of inform uh, a broader data set of what's being accomplished. 
yeah, once you once you are logged, um, you know, or listed uh, as being verified in, in in one of these respects, um, then we are able as a nation uh, to know how we're performing. So it's it's really helpful. Thank you, Suzanne Tumbaru, uh, Executive Director of ASBEC, um, and I hope one day we may even see each other in real life. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> you've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>